Welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. This week, Tim has been to a tiny temple full of talking trees. Sam previews a Steve Reich feature film. And the Snoop Dogg news we know you've been waiting for. Specialist music schools have been in the news this week for all the wrong reasons, Tim. Indeed. The independent inquiry into child sexual abuse has this week been holding investigations into allegations at three prominent residential music schools. Witnesses gave evidence about abuses they had experienced at Cheatham's in Manchester, the Purcell School in Watford, Wells Cathedral School and the Yehudi Menuhin School near Epsom. This isn't the first time that Cheatham's has come under scrutiny. Ex-director of music Michael Brewer and his wife were in 2013 convicted on various counts of indecent assault against a female pupil and both were sentenced to prison. Tragically, the victim took her own life during the trial. At this week's inquest, the current head teacher, Alan Jones, said he was truly sorry that teachers had abused positions of trust adding that I inherited a school with a troubled past, but which thankfully was in exceptional health when I arrived. However, when I spoke to a Cheatham's pupil now in their late 20s, they told me that there was definitely some dodgy stuff happening whilst I was there, but the heavier stuff was before my time. They then clarified that there were relationships happening between male members of partial staff and a few girls from years 11 to 13. She went on to say, it was a crazy place, not just inappropriate teacher-pupil relationships, but students having completely inappropriate relationships with each other. This begs two questions. Has that damaging culture been remedied, as Jones insists it has? And why are these music education environments so susceptible to abuses of power? Sure, these environments have a lot of one-on-one time between pupils and teachers. They also include people who are enormously talented, and we know that talent can be misleading about how you perceive someone, maybe ascribing greater emotional intelligence or maturity to someone just because they have phenomenal musical ability. But we know those things happen, so surely structures need to be in place to try and combat that. In further news we wish we didn't have to tell you about, we feel duty-bound to provide you with the next instalment of Placido Domingo shenanigans, which is that the accused opera singer has now quit as director of the LA Opera, a company which he founded. 
He was also honoured on Saturday with the Premio Batuta of the Consejo de Honor in Mexico, which is a Mexican award. But more intriguing is the news that the Met, having replaced Domingo in the role of Macbeth with Serbian baritone, I'm going to murder this, Zleko Lucic, have again switched singers, placing the American Craig Colcloth. Colcloth. The American Craig Colcloth in the title role. They didn't inform soprano Anna Netrebko, and neither did they explain the change. What's going on, guys? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Decca-based news. Congratulations to the team at Decca Records, who last weekend did the Three Peaks Challenge to launch the new Decca Bursary, which aims to give that first foot into classical music that a financial barrier could halt, according to Decca's Fiona Pope. Individuals in full-time education will be eligible to apply for a grant up to a maximum value of £2,000 towards classical music lessons, instruments and courses throughout the UK. Applications for awards will be open in the new year. If you want to add to that good cause, there is a link to their Just Giving page in the description below. Tonight, on the day of recording, Sunday the 6th of October, the World Orchestra are playing AI music live as it's being composed to open the World Congress of Information Technology in Armenia. This is a world first. Mm. Would you like to hear what it sounds like? I'm going to assume that was lovely, but uh, we haven't heard it yet. Snoop Dogg News. The athletic director at the University of Kansas has issued an apology following Snoop Dogg's raucous performance at an (laughs) annual university event that included pole dancers and a money gun full of fake $100 bills with his face on them. We should get this. In the midst of the controversy, Snoop Dogg will be holding a free concert on Saturday at the grand opening of Hotbox Farms, a marijuana dispensary in Ontario, Oregon. Good for you, Snoop. Yeah, good classical news there. Mm, Yeah, but it's necessary to strike a lighter tone before we move on to the genuinely sad news of the passing of Jesse Norman, the monumental American soprano who has died aged 74. We recommend watching Andre Heller's excellent 1994 documentary about her life and work, and anybody who hasn't heard her 1983 recording of Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs, go and listen as soon as you finish this podcast. Free fact about that recording, I think, in an act of pretension, my parents wanted me to be born to that recording. But then it, it never happened because, oh. you know, like birth is complicated. Imagine. But that was it. I think it was in the birth bag. Wow. Judith Weir told The Guardian, it was this rather nice quote from Judith Weir, mm. actually, about Jesse Norman. I found her extremely professional, well-informed and a joy to work with. I know she had a reputation for being a diva, but that was not my experience. At the proms, I remember being struck by the audience she had brought in. It was the first time I'd seen so many people of colour there. Thank goodness things are changing now. But she was about 20 years ahead of her time. She knew that boundaries, whether of colour or gender, had to be broken, and she wasn't going to let anyone stop her. What a great quote. I was thinking this week she might have gone her entire career without working with another black soloist. 
Whereas now that I don't think would happen, which, yeah, maybe you get to be a diva if that's the case. Analysis. Last week was Steve Reich's birthday. Happy birthday, Steve. Happy birthday, Steve. I thought we could look at a favourite piece of ours, Clapping Music, written in 1972. Long-time fans of the pod may have heard it under several of our introductions. One of the world's foremost living composers, Steve-O was a pioneer of the 20th century musical movement Minimalism. Although I don't think he's ever actually identified as a minimalist. Minimalism doesn't mean they're making very small music, does it? Sorry, Tim, I've given you the idiot line there. (laughs) Uh, No, it doesn't. Although I'd like to hear more miniaturism. Minimalism has two broad trends. Developing music from small cells of material, a feature it shares with many other genres. And it also has this very cool feature which is all its own. Minimalist music is non-teleological, which is a concept best explained through reference to the 2006 Pixar animation Cars. Right. In Cars, Lightning McQueen, voiced by the idiosyncratically nosed Owen Wilson, is a race car wrapped up in his achievements winning races and collecting prizes. Through a series of hilarious misadventures, he ends up in a nondescript flyover state, Thanks to some friendly locals, Lightning McQueen realises it's not all about the destination. It's about the friends you make along the way. It's about the journey. Steve Reich's music is all about the journey, not the destination. Steve Reich is Lightning McQueen, and Owen Wilson could play them both. Wow. Reich's music is not end-orientated. The music doesn't go from a beginning, past moment, to a future, end moment. Instead, we dwell in a single state of the present, meditating upon it, and examining it from every angle. Right. Obtuse. (laughs) Both of these features are combined in clapping music. A very small cell is heard, one bar of music in 12-8. The fact it's in that time signature is important. The cell is performed on the most minimalist of all instruments, our hands. If he was a true purist, we'd hear the sound of one hand clapping instead, which sounds like this. I'm pretty happy with that. And then, whilst one performer continues with the original pattern, the cell is presented in every possible iteration by the other clapper. How do we hear different versions, then? It's through a technique called phasing. And that sounds a bit Star Trek related to me. It isn't, but let's make it. Take a sequence of items. Let's say Star Trek captains. Make it so, Mr. LaForge. I'm the captain! You are not in control here anymore. You look like crap, Jim. And then number them one, two, three, four. Take number one and put it to the back of the queue. I'm the captain! You are not in control here anymore. You look like crap, Jim. Make it so, Mr. LaForge. Now you've got two, three, four, one. Then take two to the back. You are not in control here anymore. You look like crap, Jim. Make it so, Mr. LaForge. I'm the captain! Three, four, one, two. That's what Reich does with all 12 of the quavers in the bar. The first quaver becomes the last in the sequence, and everything jumps up one place in the queue, and a new rhythm is created as a result. Listen here to our version with added pitches for a bit of extra clarity. The original first beat is the highest pitch. 
add that to the original clapping part and you've got quite a trendy set of phases. So tell me, why is this non-teleological? Well, that sequence could just keep on rolling forever. There's no sense of it ending. It could still be going on now. We just dwell on it as it exists kind of outside of time. It's mathematically perfect, complete, and could keep rotating forever on a minimum of material and pattern. I really like it as an expression of minimalism because even though there are great big minimalist megaworks for huge orchestras and often quite a lot of vibraphones, this micro-masterpiece has been boiled down to its very essence. Reduced like a jus. Exactly. Every single part of it is minimalist. But in a way, that creates a contradiction. This piece that is all about an ongoing journey is arguably the end point of minimalism. It couldn't be reduced further. It's the point of minimalist perfection. It's a modern gem. Just like Owen Wilson. Daunted by the prodigious output of other composers. Wow, seven projects. Steve Reich was struggling against the teleological musical establishment. He's crazy as a road lizard. He faced rejection at every turn. God damn, damn it! But with a little help from Eastern philosophy and his composer friends, he realizes it's not about where you're going, but the fun you can have along the way. Wow. With Patrick Stewart as Michael Nyman. On a beach! And Jack Black as John Adams. Dude, you are cool. The way you play. This summer, Owen Wilson has got the Reich stuff. Come on, stop, please. It's embarrassing. Composer Fact File, Steve Reich. Born, New York, October the 3rd, 1936. His mother was the Broadway lyricist June Silman. His father was a lawyer. Before turning to composition, he studied philosophy at Cornell. His composition teachers included Mio and Berio. Before commercial success arrived, he worked as a taxi driver, sound man, and social worker. A devout practitioner of Judaism who observes the Sabbath, Reich does not rehearse or perform from Friday evening to Saturday evening. He is a Radiohead fan. After hearing Johnny Greenwood play his electric counterpoint at a Polish music festival in 2011, he claims his technique of phasing arose from his poor quality tape recorders playing at different speeds. He studied Ghanaian and Balinese percussion. A native New Yorker, he wrote WTC 911 to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of September the 11th attacks. Reich only writes music that he can play so that he can be part of the performance when his schedule allows it. Reich collaborated with his wife, video artist Beryl Kurat, on two multimedia operas, The Cave and Three Tales. He once said... What I want to do is go and buy a bunch of exotic-looking drums and set up an Africanish music in New York City. Quick reminder to all you podcasts that we are currently running a harmonization competition. If you think you can do a better job of harmonizing Glory to Hong Kong by Thomas DGXYHL, then look to the link in the description below where you will find the tune. 
send your harmonization to the classical music pod at gmail.com. And if we like what we hear, we'll make it into a jingle. Classical chat. Classical chat. Classical chat. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Tim, you've been to Temple. I did. On Thursday evening, I went to The Sound of Nature, Mm. which is a concert at Temple Church given by the vocal group Nature's Voice. Cool, trendy name. Yeah, it was curated by Jonathan Darborn. Darborn? Darborn. Darborn. And... It featured a selection of tree-themed works interspersed by recorded sounds from nature, vox pops of people talking about their favourite trees, and sort of quasi-sermons on the importance of preserving the natural world by the author Peter Fines and the environmental lawyer Fahama Yamin. Lovely, so sort of TED Talk with music yeah. and acoustic stuff. Exactly. Mm. And on the face of it, that kind of formula can easily come across as clunky, Mm. preachy, contrived, and even a bit gimmicky. But because enough work and thought had gone into the programme, it was, thankfully, none of those things. And in fact, because we were in a church and there was no applause, the singers were regularly moving about as though processing. Uh, And there was this natural transition between music, sound, and sermon. It kind of reminded me of an Anglican church service. But... Being at best an agnostic myself, <laughs> finally, one in which the themes I could really get on board with. And to that end, I found the whole thing more engaging and actually rather moving. Cool. And I think, yeah, that point of you can tell when someone's done their homework and mm. we've been to concerts where that hasn't been the case. Oh, yeah. If you're going to do something innovative, you've got to actually, it can't just be the concept. Exactly. Great that you found it a satisfying execution because I've seen you in Anglican church services and you start coming out in a rash. I do, and I mostly fall asleep, actually. Also, incidentally, it reminded me of Radio 3's Sounds of the Earth on a Sunday morning. I don't know if anyone catches that. It's where the music is interspersed with recorded bits from nature. And it's such a welcome change from my midweek Radio 4 wake-up, which is... A bit stressful at the moment. Really stressful. So we heard music that spans several hundred years, works by Renaissance composers like Clément Janikin. Am I saying that right? Ah, oh, Janikin. Janikin and Adrian Villart uh, were heard alongside pieces by Mendelssohn, Butterworth, uh, some folk arrangements by Britton and Vaughan Williams, and some arrangements, I believe, by Dabon himself <laughs> of Joni Mitchell and Brian Wilson songs. Now, the overriding theme of all these songs was, of course, nature, and most often trees, so you've got the loveliest of trees, the oak and the ash, hey-ho to the green wood, a day in the life of the tree, etc., etc., etc. The only odd choice was strange fruit, which is not really about trees at all, and actually did feel a bit inappropriate. Okay. Apart from the odd moment in the Renaissance rep, the quality of ensemble singing was very high. There were some very beautiful solos from Friends of the Pod, Guy Cutting and Esther Mallet. Many are actually members of the Temple Singers, so you can definitely tell that they'd all sung together. They all really were in tune with each other. gelled sound. Exactly. Since my university days, when all the trendy composition teachers were obsessed with electronics, I had been very wary of placing too much emphasis on having them in performance. But here they proved really effective. The speakers were set up at different points around the church, 
and the designer Dan Samsa was brilliantly varied the textures of the surround sound, so it felt like the room was spinning around you, which is cool. And the most interesting moments were actually of the whole concert were when when the pre-recorded sound and the live singers came together. For example, when a rhythmic pattern, which was made by the layering of the sound of chopping wood, led into one of the pieces that had the same rhythm, and yeah, Yeah. it was cool. And I think more could have been made of that actually. In um, John Adams's book hallelujah junction he talks a lot about that for him has been the defining thing of his career is trying to bring together electronic elements mm. and live elements and the the incredible challenges that that creates and how unrepeatable those things are because you'll build it for one hall and then suddenly you take it somewhere else and it, it doesn't work yeah exactly so that perhaps that's why they probably there was a limit to the amount they could do but right. you know had they more resources and time i would have loved to have seen more of that but you know or big kudos for them to, for, for getting to the point where that was effective and mm. it worked in that room. Just one final thought. It would be very easy and very safe to stand there and sing songs about trees without trying anything new. And I think the fact that Dubon has taken a risk here and <laughs> that it paid off <laughs> is a major credit to him. And I really hope that more choirs follow suit in that way. Taking risks is good. And even if it doesn't work, then at least he tried. you got to pick a pocket or two. Sanctus from Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, written in 1962. James Horner's soundtrack to the motion picture Troy, written in 2004. Released on Orchid Classics, our CD this week is Gabriella Montero's Pair of Piano Concertos. Or Concerti, I suppose. Uh, The first is her own Latin concerto that she's composed, and the second is the galaxy chocolate of the genre, Ravel's Piano Concerto in G. Who are the orchestra playing with her? Orchestra of the Americas, who are like a sort of super youth orchestra. They're all aged between 18 and 30. They are representing 26 countries from across the Western Hemisphere. Their average age is 24. And they sound slick as anything. They're they're the perfect people to be recording this Latin piece as well. It's in their bones. They groove away. Mm, And what's Montero's concerto like? 
Uh, well, her own words on the piece are that uh, when most people think of Latin America, they imagine a place where life, like the music, is full of rhythm, sensuality, and primitive energy. I know it's appealing to market Latin America as a bubbly, fun paradise, but there are dark shadows over it, and all that can stop us from seeing clearly. There are shadows of violence and corruption that have prevented some Latin American countries from reaching their full potential. This is the story I wanted to tell. This is why my Latin concerto shows the complexities of South American life. Which is pretty intriguing, mm, as a thing to that say. It is intriguing. Right? And from the research I've done, she seems like a very intriguing person, who I actually hadn't come across before. She's a thoughtful musician. She no longer performs in Venezuela for political reasons. That's her home country, so sad that she doesn't do that. And she was also part of the all-star quartet who uh, performed Obama's inauguration, playing a nice piece by John Williams. Mm. Um, so if you've got the Obama seal of approval, you must be all right. She does cool, offbeat things, like improvised encores on audience suggestions. It's all very trendy. Listening to the concerto, though, I think actually it's, um, it doesn't totally meet her own description, certainly not in the first movement, which is great, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a sort of mambo groove with rhythms and funky, flat-filled tonalities, and it, it all has that improvising energy. But for all the changes that we hear in texture and orchestration and the kind of material that she's covering, I didn't really hear much of the grit in the oyster that she describes uh, wanting to bring to people's perceptions of Latin America. Mm. The... Piano part is so kaleidoscopic and fiendishly difficult, I'd have thought. I can't work out whether it's all written down or whether she's improvising it because it ha- it all sounds like she's making it up on the spot, which is mm. a testament to her performance. That piano part, that solo part, has so many spanners thrown in the works, it, deliberately, compositionally, to sort of challenges to meet and different corners to negotiate. The orchestral part is more simple. And uh, something like... John Adams's uh, Chamber Symphony has these different unpredictable moments thrown at different parts of the orchestra to then negotiate. Here it feels like the oboe does what an oboe does, the clarinet does what a clarinet does, and then suddenly the strings do what the strings do. It's orchestrated so idiomatically, it almost feels familiar and predictable, even though this is a brand new work. I can't work out whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it feels like a feature of this, and... A lot of the musical language seems to draw on concertos that she has famously played before, things like the Rachmaninoffs and um, Gershwin. And that musical language perhaps is less contemporary than some of the stuff that is being written at the moment. The Ravel is also recorded live, so it must have been a hell of an evening, because that's a fiendishly difficult part, and both her and the orchestra make it sound much more simple than it actually is. There's like, oh, there's a story of Bernstein conducting it and uh, playing it at the same time, which allegedly went very badly. But you can see why he thought he might be able to do it when you hear a recording like this, because like, oh, it's inevitable, the, the orchestra just come in and then this. What would have been really nice is perhaps a bonus track on the disc would have been if she would had included one of those improvised encores that she's famous for. She takes a suggestion from the audience for a theme and then noodles for seven minutes. I've linked one in the description and it's just amazing. Habanera with Scott Joplin flavours. And that kind of thing would have, I think, elevated this disc from being one that I really enjoyed to one that I'd have to recommend to everybody. The final point is that I try hard, and you try hard as well, Tim, to make sure that we're not only talking about dead white boys. Mm. Uh, And I have to dig quite a lot at the moment to find CDs of music, especially by living composers, but by women living composers. There just isn't that much of it happening. There seems to be quite a lot of performance happening. Someone like Anna Meredith, who's kind of in the canon in the club, is being performed every other week, quite rightly. She's great. But in terms of making CDs, committing that extra financial 
risk of making a CD mm. um, is still not happening as much as we might like. Yeah, so I suppose why we're indebted to people like Sartre Mason for that Clara Schumann CD and why we can't afford to get complacent on these things. Yeah. I'm in the gorgeous surroundings of St John's Smith Square, the first time I've actually ever been to St John's Smith Square, with Mark Ford, director, conductor of the Purcell Singers, who are actually going to be putting on the Brahms Requiem tonight. First of all, Mark, how are the rehearsals going? What are, your, are you excited for the gig tonight? I'm really excited for the concert. I'm very much looking forward to it. The rehearsals have gone well, so touch wood. Yeah. Let's hope the concert's going to go well too. And what is your relationship with the Brahms Requiem? Is that something that you've done a lot of times or does it have a particular significance to you as a conductor, would you say? Or? Well, I wanted to do it for our 25th anniversary concert because it's one of my favourite pieces and I think it's one of the most moving pieces of choral music mm. I've written. It really is, for me, one of the pinnacles of the repertoire and it means a, a, an awful lot to me. And we're doing tonight what's called the London version, which is an arrangement that Brahms did himself mm. for piano duet, um, which we performed months before in St Martin in the Fields, and we're doing that again. I, d I didn't actually realise that, that Brahms had made these two arrangements. I had always known the version for orchestra. Obviously, we are joined by a piano on the, on the stage. Yes. Which <laughs> it it is, a, is a wonderful arrangement. I think what's special for me about the Brahms is that it isn't the traditional Latin text yeah. of the Requiem. It's texts that Brahms chose himself from scripture right. to tell essentially a positive story yeah. about what awaits us beyond. Mm. So it's not a sort of mournful, a hand-wringing piece. It's, very, it's a very optimistic, in many ways, very joyful, celebratory piece. And, and I think that's why, because it obviously meant a lot to him personally. Yeah. Um, that's why I think it's a, it's a very special piece and, and I really love performing it. And you ha the Purcell Singers and yourself, you're also bringing out a CD in November and that features lots of choral uh, favourites of mine. Morton Lawrenson, I believe. You've got, did I see some Britain or some Elgar? Both Britain and Elgar. And, yes. and Elgar, yeah. When did you record this? Was it over the summer or? No, we recorded it in St Jude on the Hill in Hampstead in uh, over two Saturdays in the end of February and early March. Mm. It was very, very cold. The heating in that say, church isn't so great and we were all wearing our overcoats. And uh, yeah, that's coming out in November. It started out really, we thought we wanted to mark the occasion of the choir's 25th anniversary by bringing out a CD. And we talked a bit about what, you know, what should go on the CD and, and we thought it would be nice to include really some of the choir's favourite works that we've performed over the years, in some cases many times. And we did a list of our favourites, if you like, and it ended up, it sort of coalesced around this theme of British and American a cappella works from the 20th century. Mm. It's a very democratic approach to making a disc then. Well, when I say we, I, I'm slightly using the royal we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, actually, I really like getting input from the choir or from the trustees about you know, stuff they would like to perform. But generally, over the last 25 years, the programming has been mm. pretty much up to me as to what yeah. I want to perform. 
I think you always have to be driven by what you think the audience will want. You yeah. have to be driven by what you think the choir will want to perform as well. And you have to come up with different ideas, with varied mm. programs, programs that, that will challenge the choir, to a degree will challenge the audience as well. Yeah. Um, I, I guess really that's the reason I started the group 25 years ago, because I had been conducting as, a, as organ scholar at my college. And when I came back down to London, I was singing in various choirs, but I, I really missed conducting and I missed that ability to be able to express myself and to be able to share my own vision of the piece, my mm. own interpretation, and communicate that to the choir and, and communicate that to the audience in yeah. the performance. And so I really, it, it literally began with me asking a few friends in, you know, that I'd met really yeah. through singing, if I'm thinking of starting a choir, would you come and sing for me? And mm. enough of them said yes, that, yeah. that I, I started it and it sort of went from there. Yeah. Sam, uh, my co-host and, and good friend, he's just started up a orchestra called the Port Meadow Symphony based in London and it's, and they're looking to grow and build members and it sounds like it was a very natural process for you. It was just something that you did with a few friends and it grew from there. But did you come across any difficulties or would you have any advice perhaps for somebody that is at that early stage of building a group? Well, it's a lot of hard work. You have to be really convinced you want to do it. And now more than ever, it's a very competitive environment. Mm. So obviously you're competing for audiences with other really excellent groups. And obviously you're also competing for performers. So the London choir scene is smaller than it seems. You know, there's, I, I, <laughs> when I was singing a lot more, I don't sing so much anymore, but in my younger days I did sing a lot. And, and I would quite often get called up by somebody who, you know, they, they were short of a bass or whatever. So I, I'd go along and it would be a choir I didn't know and I'd expect that I wouldn't know anybody in that choir but there'd be half a dozen people that I knew from other groups I'd sung with. Mm. And so there's a lot of people will not just sing for one group, but sing for two or three. And so persuading them to do your gig, you know, you have to have something interesting. Mm. You, know, you have to be doing interesting repertoire and be doing good concerts to high quality. And, and also another thing that's really important to me and to the choir is that we're a very friendly group. So that people actually want to come and sing. Mm. Ultimately, they're all there as volunteers and they do it because they enjoy it. And mm. So you've got to make it a, a fun experience as well as musically challenging and interesting. Mm. You, you say that they, they want to come because it's that warm sort of family type environment, but I wonder if there are certain groups that do exist where there is perhaps too much pressure placed on the singers and it's not necessarily as warm as it, as it could be. Jesus Would you want me to name some? <laughs> yeah, <tell me. laughs> no, I mean, I, I wouldn't even if I did know yeah. it. But uh, I'm sure that's right. There must be some groups that where it's you know, less collegial, shall we say. You know, if I think back to how my style has changed over the 25 years that I've been doing this, you know, I, th I think conductors are often perfectionists. They want it to be right. And it can be frustrating when you're working with, you know, volunteers, amateurs who mm. are doing it because they love it, but they've all got day jobs mostly. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes work gets in the way or people are sick or, you know, family issues, kids or mm. spouses or whatever, and they drop out of rehearsals or they drop out of a concert, you know, and that, and that could be frustrating. Mm. You know, you sort of want to shout at them and, yeah. 
and, and it's hard. Do you and I won't say I've them? never shouted at them because certainly in my younger days I used to lose my rag quite a lot. I try not to do that now just because I think there are better ways yep. of getting the best out of people. Mm. Well, I'd like to say a word actually about Jonathan Schrantz, who is now the choir's conductor. So mm. we recruited him 18 months ago. Well, for a number of reasons, really. First of all, I have a day job as well. Yeah. And over the last few years, I've been traveling a lot. And that means that it's quite difficult for me to commit to particular dates in advance. And the choir wants to have a schedule, you know, a year or even two years ahead so that it knows what's coming up mm. and we can plan. But partly also because after 25 years, in order for the choir to continue to grow and develop, it feels right for, for somebody new to come in yeah. with some new ideas and to bring their own ideas about repertoire, their own ideas about performance, mm. and to, you know, to do something a bit different. And I'm very, very lucky because I've been able to do almost all the pieces that I ever wanted to do. You know, this is why I started the group, because I wanted to perform a lot of this repertoire. Like I said, almost everything that I've, I've wanted to perform, I've been able to. So I do mm. count myself very fortunate. But there's a lot more repertoire out there that that I don't know or that maybe isn't really mm. my forte. And so we recruited Jonathan and I'm still going to be involved with the choir, still as the sort of founding musical director, I think we decided my, my title would be. <laughs> um, but he's going to be doing the majority of the concerts going yeah. forward. And he's also a lot calmer than I am. So really? he has a very, very even temperament and I think he'll be, he'll be absolutely great with the choir. Do you find there's any sense of loss at having to relinquish a little bit of control over that? I've thought about that a lot. I've always said that I wanted the choir to have its own identity separate from me so mm. that, you know, if I went under a bus, it would carry on, you know, because I, I feel it is a great group. We've done some fantastic things. It's a thing in itself. It should be a thing in itself that exists independent of me. And I believe it does. And I've thought about, is it going to be difficult to let that go? And I, I genuinely don't think it is. I think it would be difficult if I was sort of suddenly cut off and had nothing more to do with it. I did feel quite emotional taking the rehearsal this afternoon, but I think that is because it's an amazing piece and I really think the choir performed it beautifully and there were some absolutely amazing moments. Over the years, you know, you have difficult rehearsals and concerts that don't go so well, frustrating times, you know, like people drop out or whatever. Mm. And there have been many of those, of course, over the years when I think, oh, this is really hard, why do I do this? You know, sort of, you know, get home after a long day, you've been at work, you've done a three-hour rehearsal, you get home and you think, I really don't want to do this anymore. But then there's always a moment, mm. you know, or so far there has always been a moment, <laughs> something magical happens in the concert or even in a rehearsal where it just all comes together and you think, okay, mm. this is why I do it, this makes it all worthwhile. And, there were actually, this is rare, but there were many of those moments for me today in the rehearsal. So I'm, I don't want to tempt fate, but I'm really, yeah. really looking forward to the Sounds performance. Sounds like it's going to be a special night. <laughs> On that note, I wish you the very best of luck tonight. Uh, it was lovely talking Thank to you. you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Coming up. This week, over the next two weeks, <laughs> Thursday, the 10th of October, which is Verdi's birthday. Happy birthday, Verdi. At the Verdi. Old Church in Stoke Newington, which is a brilliant little venue. Mm. I've been to a few times. The Lodestar Trio bring 
A Spirit of Groove and Improvisation into the Baroque by connecting music by Bach and other Baroque composers with the Swedish folk sound world. Fun! Fun indeed. Swedish fun. On Friday the 11th, at Buxton Opera House in the East Midlands, the English Touring Opera present their first non-London production of Kurt Weill's The Silver Lake. Tim Kurt Weill, a real favourite of yours. Mm. The last opera he wrote before fleeing Nazi Germany. If you're into Weill and his unique brand of operatic satire, then this should be a cracker. Saturday the 12th in Oxford's Mathematical Institute and Sunday the 13th in St George's, Bristol, the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. Explore the links between Bach's music and mathematics with concerts that mix Bach's cantata Ach, ich sehr it's da ich zur Hochzeitgehe with talks by Professor Alan Gorley. He's the statutory professor of mathematical modelling at the University of Oxford. Sam, you're looking at me like I've just killed that the, German. There'll be some sad Germans out there, man, <laughs> if, they, if they listen. Monday, the 14th of October, Zemlinsky's birthday. Mm. Alexander Zemlinsky, who taught... Who was it we were thinking about who got taught by Zemlinsky? Schoenberg. Yes, he did. Yeah, Zemlinsky, who taught Schoenberg. His birthday. There's, there's something cool happening at the Fidelio Cafe, Clerkenwell. Italian violinist... Emma Aritza and a Romanian pianist Maria Grecu celebrate humour in music with works by Sibelius, Pagnini and Vorjak, as well as other fun encores. Yeah, that mysterious. I wonder if they're going to choose something to improvise on. That'd be nice, wouldn't yeah. it? Wednesday the 16th to the 21st, Edinburgh, Inverness, Glasgow, Perth, London, the Scottish Ensemble begin their tour of concerts designed to explore how our surroundings alter the way we experience music. This is intriguing. So they'll perform the first half of each concert in one venue, and then they'll shift to a different venue nearby for the second half. Sounds like quite an expensive way to do it, especially if it's raining. It's going to... Yeah, okay, cool. Innovative. We'd like people to take risks. (laughs) What fun. Thursday the 17th of October is Herbert Howes' birthday. It's one he shares with Felicity Jones. Oh. Chuck it a mother. Eminem, Toby Young. Which uh, one? The bad one or the composer? Uh, the journalist. The bad um, one. Yeah. Uh, John Paul Marie, the singing nun. Have you not heard of the singing nun? No. Oh, uh, look at uh, Google her. Uh, that night, <laughs> on on Thursday the seventeenth, at the Bussy Building in Peckham, the New London Chamber Choir presents Juvenilia which is an evening of music dealing with issues of sexual politics, mental illness and memory by composers Lawrence Osborne, Ruth Crawford Seeger, yeah, like her. who we analysed last season, Per Norgard, Ted Hearn and David Fennessy. Juvenalia, isn't that kind of like stuff before you've reached maturity? Um, 19th and 20th of October, happy birthday, Nurse Betty, Brompton Cemetery is the place to be for a candle-lit performance of Death and the Maiden, an awesome string quartet by Schubert. It's being played by the Vanitas Quartet, and you get a free gin cocktail. Finish! A big thank you to the majestic, the spindly Harry Sever for creating that incredible piece of music that we opened today's podcast with superstar if anybody has a spare double bass in bristol can they let us know lauren cox is on the lookout she's always played in orchestras and they've always been able to lend her a double bass she's just moved to bristol to do some graduate study and would really like one so get in touch with the pod and we can sort that out and finally a big thank you to orchid classics for letting us use that marvelous clip of the marvelous piano music from the marvelous composer Gabriela Montero. 
I swear to God, screwed on the old bedroom selection. Every room's like four times as big as mine. <laughs>